Chapter 1 of Autobiography of an Actress or Eight Years on the Stage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Autobiography of an Actress by Anna Cora Mowat. Chapter 1 My father, Samuel G. Ogden, of New York, was the son of an Episcopal clergyman. For a number of years my father's name was prominent in the community as that of a successful merchant. He was the capitalist in the celebrated Miranda expedition, which was designated to liberate South America. This expedition owed its failure to the treachery and ambition of Aaron Burr, who, finding his own views interfered with, betrayed his friend Colonel Smith and informed the Spanish minister at Philadelphia of the purposes of that expedition. The minister sent to the Spanish main a Baltimore clipper, which gave warning to the authorities. The Spanish brigs of war were dispatched to intercept the expedition. An action took place between these brigs and the ship Leander, belonging to my father, and two schooners. The schooners were captured, a portion of the men hung, and the rest imprisoned. General Miranda, who was on board of the Leander, beat off the two brigs of war, went to Trinidad, got reinforcements, and, with four hundred men, took possession of the town of Coro on the Spanish coast. He remained there for ten or twelve days, and only retreated because he found the inhabitants were not prepared to join him. Colonel Smith, the son-in-law of President Adams, and my father were prosecuted for having fitted out an expedition against a power of amity with the United States. The trial was a highly interesting one. Thomas Adis Emmett, Cadwallader D. Colson, Josiah Ogden Hoffman, and Richard Harrison were their counsel. The defendants were honorably acquitted. Although this expedition failed, it was the first blow struck for liberty and led to the subsequent independence of South America. Bolivar himself made this declaration and expressed a readiness to compensate my father for his heavy losses. My mother, Eliza Ogden, was a daughter of Francis Lewis, and the granddaughter of that Francis Lewis, whose signature is affixed to the Declaration of Independence. My earliest recollections are of a beautiful old country seat called La Castagna, and situated two miles from Bordeaux in France. My parents were residing in Bordeaux at the time of my birth, but removed to La Castagna when I was only a few months old. My father's commercial transactions caused him to pass some eleven years abroad. During this period, four daughters were born, of whom I was the second. I have dim but most delightful remembrances of La Castagna, which come to me like half-forgotten dreams. I remember a magnificent terrace where we children used to frolic, a beautiful walk called Allée d'Amour, lined with tall trees, 
whose branches met and formed a bower over the head, a large pond surrounded with statues and filled with fishes, which it was our daily delight to feed, a gaily painted pleasure boat, always floating on the pond, a grotto called Calypso's Grotto, a miniature waterfall, our great wonder and admiration, the whole place a very Eden of fruits and flowers. The following description of La Castagna is furnished to me by my brother Charles to aid in my imperfect recollections of the beautiful spot that we first called home. Though so many years have passed since we dwelt there, I find no difficulty in picturing to mind every scene of La Castagna, that delightful residence of our earlier years, where life was one joyous holiday. I only fear I may fail in the description you request of me. La Castagna is situated in the parish of Beglaise, about two miles from the gates of Bordeaux. Its name it was derived from a row of large horse chestnut trees, which are thus called in patois, and which spread along the little stream that formed the boundary of one of the sides of this elegant country seat. The whole property extended over about thirty acres, situated on a sloping ground, at the foot of which ran a beautiful rivulet that separated it from the adjoining residence. All the rest was enclosed by a high stone wall of eight feet. The dwelling, or chateau, which contained twenty-two rooms, was built of stone and brick, was on the highest part of the ground, and overlooked a pleasant landscape. In front was a beautiful jardin anglais, of which considerable extent, and compromising every variety of floral productions, the magnificent tulips especially are fresh in my mind. In the center of this was a bower of lovely form, which was the frequent evening resort of our assembled family, and running the whole length of the chateau and flower garden were several rows of shady plantains or plain trees, whose smooth bark had often been disfigured by the carved ditties of loving swains. The whole formed a level terrace of about four acres, and a stone abutment encircled one side of it, which was elevated twenty feet from the gardens below. In the rear of the main dwelling was an extensive lawn, around which were situated the outhouses, also of stone, and comprising first the dwellings of our peasants, then the wine buildings, stables, and granaries, which formed two sides, and on the third side were extensive accommodations for poultry, whose dwelling, surmounted by fanciful pigeon house, was in a yard furnished with cherry trees for their especial benefit. There were also an aviary and apartments for rabbits, guinea pigs, and other small quadrupeds. Extending from the rear of these buildings were eleven acres of vineyard, from which were made annually about thirty casks of wine. Then by the side of the aviary, but below the terrace, was an extensive orchard, which was furnished in abundance every variety of delicious fruits of that sunny clime. Immediately adjoining was a large vegetable garden, and the whole remainder of the lands consisted of parks, fields, and meadows. 
enclosed by beautiful alleys cultivated with great care. One of these, Allee Antoinette, was particularly curious. The trees, regular on each side and uniting in an arch, were trimmed so artistically that scarcely a leaf ventured to grow beyond its limited barrier. Here no ray of sun could penetrate on the warmest day. And then there was the Allée d'Amour, another romantic walk, besides a number of others partaking of the same peculiarity, and affording shade in almost every direction. At the foot of the slope were a cluster of trees, a bosquet of wilder character than the rest, and this was called Calypso's Grotto. In the center, covered with green moss, were seats, one more elevated than the others. In the quiet of this secluded spot, no sound to break its sylvan solitude but the warbling of wild birds, who in happy security had chosen this favorite home, and the constant murmur of a cascade in the rivulet I have already mentioned, which flowed beneath the grotto, one could almost fancy that Calypso with her nymphs had indeed dwelt there, and there sat listening to grave mentor, whilst her eyes were beaming with love for the youthful Telemachus. But I must not forget one of the chief beauties of La Castagna, its whole length being traversed by a watercourse, originating in a clear and beautiful spring, covered over with an arched dome of masonry, a lovely place that Narcissus might have made his constant resort, surrounded as it was with beautiful lilies, which, reflected in a limpid fountain, seemed to remind one that the melancholy youth had in truth been there, and there pined away. The water thence flowed through a stone canal to a circular pond of considerable depth. This place, called the Lavoir, was deposited to useful purposes and was the particular resort of ducks and washerwomen. Thence a canal led across the gardens to the opposite extremity of the grounds, where it emptied into another and more extensive pond, forming a sheet of water about 400 yards in length, and one-third the breadth. But this was devoted exclusively to pleasure. Its banks were supported by stonework and ornamented with statuary of much taste. A sailing boat was ever ready for water excursions, and several weeping willows afforded a pleasant shade for the angler. It abounded in several species of fish, particularly the carp. Running through a diminutive forest, the water thence emptied into the rivulet spoken of before. During our residence at La Castagna, there was but one winter cold enough to form ice in the pond. This, once it lasted several days and afforded good skating, a recreation quite novel to the citizens of Bordeaux. La Castagna became then the resort of most of the English and American residents of the city, and the pond presented a scene of liveliness and fashion seldom equaled. There were good skaters even among the ladies, and our southern neighbors of Vegels were particularly charmed with this rare sport. I will not undertake to describe the many joyous scenes of our country life, such as the harvesting, the May Day and birthday festivals, 
or our Christmas frolics, but one of these annual customs deserves a passing notice, and that is the vendages, or wine-making. It was usual in the month of September, according to the maturity of the grapes, to fix a day when our neighbors were all informed that our vendages would commence. When this day arrived, the peasants of all the neighboring country seats flocked to La Castagne's, and all were diligently employed in the business of wine-making. The women and a portion of the men sallied forth merrily into the vineyards with their baskets and carefully gathered the grapes. As each basket was filled, it was brought in on their heads, balanced as only these peasants can balance their burden and there was an actual immolation as to which could most frequently return with his or her basket filled another portion of the men would be occupied in pressing or rather trampling the grapes barefooted and their trousers rolled up they danced about in a large reservoir which was the receptacle of the contents of each basket as it successively arrived and the gleeful song kept time with the wine-stained legs, as the juice of the grape flowed beneath the tuneful tramp. Often I have joined this merry party, and barefooted helped to express the wine. The advantage of using feet is that they yield to the stem and seeds, and the grape only is crushed, without their bitterness mixing with the pure juice. From this reservoir, the wine is constantly carried into large cuvées, where it undergoes fermentation and is in time further prepared for the table. This gay scene with us usually occupied three days, and all who came to assist were entertained with a plentiful collation, serving on long tables on the green lawn where the day was closed with the happy peasant's dance, the fiddler being a regular attendant at each vendage. As the neighboring estates each had in turn their festival, our peasants went to assist them, and were treated with the same joyful cheer till the round was completed. Next to La Castagna, some of our pleasantest reminiscences are of St. Foy, a small fortified town encircled by a high wall with its ancient cathedral and its antiquated college and situated on the romantic banks of the limpid Dordogne. We had numerous pets at La Castagna and those I can well remember. The ones most prized by me chanced not to be of a very poetical class no other than a certain young family of guinea pigs whose number had an indefinite increase fortunately there were deaths now and then amongst them and i have a very distinct recollection of the funeral obsequies paid to these very beloved favorites we were then five brothers and seven sisters we used to form ourselves into a procession of mourners. Two of the boys carried on their shoulders a rude box for a coffin containing the dead body of the favorite, covered with a white pall 
over which were strewn fresh flowers. The procession was headed by our third brother, Charles, who carried a huge bell, which he tolled with considerable violence as the procession moved on. At the grave, the box was placed in the earth, and the bell toller, who was quite celebrated amongst us for his powers of oratory, delivered a flowery and moving address, to which we listened with profound attention, making all due efforts to shed tears at the proper places. The earth was then shoveled in, and we all ran off to play, or perhaps to look forward with, with some excitement to the decease of the next favorite. We had one custom amongst us, I presume of French origin, which has also left a de deep impression. On the anniversary of the birthday of our parents, we all assembled early in the morning to await their entrance into the breakfast room. Every child had a little cadeau to offer. The elder ones generally presented scrolls containing verses, sometimes copied, sometimes original, and the younger ones bouquets of violets. The verses were inscribed on large sheets of papers, surrounded by drawings of wreaths of flowers and other devices, and were styled les compliments. When our parents appeared, we went up to them in turn, according to our ages, proudly offering our compliments, and receiving kisses and words of encouragement in return, praises which made the day a jubilee. I remember, when I could not have been more than five years old, growing very weary in an effort to copy verses in a large round hand to be presented on one of these birthday anniversaries. After a deal of blotting and scratching, and beginning anew, they were finished at last. I can see them now as they lay before me, written on a huge sheet, nicely rolled up, and tied with gay ribbons, ready to be offered. Baby, almost as I was, I experienced a sensation of pride and delight which has not often been surpassed after many years. The performance of private plays seems to have been the favorite amusement of my elder brothers and sisters. I can only remember one of these occasions, the one on which I made my own debut. The play represented was Othello, translated into French. My eldest sister enacted Desdemona, my eldest brother, Othello, the second sister, Amelia, the second brother, Cassio, doubling the part with that of the uncle, the third brother, Iago, doubling the part with that of the judge. The other brothers and sisters filled the remaining characters. In the French version, however, the dramatis personae are not the same as in the Othello of Shakespeare. The variation from the original text are, in some instances, of the most comical nature. A difficulty occurred about the judges in the trial scene. Our dramatic corps proved insufficient to furnish judges. To supply this vacancy, the four younger children were summoned, dressed in red gowns and white wigs, made to sit on high benches and instructed to pay great attention and not to laugh. Of these children, I was the youngest, and at five years old, 
in the sedate and solemn character of a judge upon a mimic stage i made my first appearance in the profession of which it was the permission of the divine providence that i should one day in reality become a member the festivities of that night were in honor of my father's birthday the evening commenced with the christening of the youngest child the play succeeded and a ball closed the night or rather ushered in the morning on the same night a similar version of othello was enacted at the theatre royal of lafont the great successor of the great talma one of our friends attended both representation the iago of our troop confidently asked this gentleman whether the performance at the theatre royal at all our home delineations the exact answer returned is not on record but the ambitious young questioner presumed that there could but be one reply i cannot re recollect the performances of my elder brothers and sisters but i have heard that they displayed remarkable dramatic talent this talent does not appear to have been inherited my father merely appreciated theatrical performances without having a passion for them my beloved mother was brought up in a school too rigid to inspire any particular love for the stage she enjoyed a good play in common with other persons of cultivation and taste but never joined in any private performance nor appeared very frequently in public i have often tried to discover the source whence sprang the power of representation which seems to run through one branch of the family but without success nor can my father throw any light upon the subject before leaving france the family removed to bordeaux but i can scarcely call to mind that city i only remember the public gardens where we used to play the deep grass-covered hollow in their centre called le bassin around which we daily danced in a ring with a host of little french children and i recollect some of our merry french games but nothing else i was in my seventh year when we embarked from bordeaux for new york in the ship brant even at this day i cannot think of that dreadful voyage without a shudder the terrible crash with which we were early one morning waked from sleep still sounds in my ears the ship was pitching so violently that we children could scarcely hold ourselves in our berths one little sister was thrown out and bruised against the great dinner-table the water was pouring down the companionway and threatened to flood the whole cabin my brother charles at my earnest request furnishes me with his recollections of the voyage and shipwreck which i insert we left st foy to join the remainder of our family on our return to america we sailed from bordeaux in the ship brant captain steinauer and on the seventeenth september we left the river and passed the tour de corvan at the month of the gironda a place we had before visited in some of our summer excursions to the seashore the tour de corvanda is built on a rock far out in the sea and for six months of the year is often unapproachable 
on account of the boisterous waves that wash its base. The family living there, and who have charge of the revolving light, have then no communication with the external world for a length of time. In summer the rock is dry, and is often visited. The building, which is of square stone, was erected during the reign of Henri Quatre, and is four hundred feet above the level of the sea. The lower part contains apartments for every sort of artisanship, and a spiral stairway of three hundred and sixty-five steps, relieved at intervals by large Gothic chambers, conducts to the top, where one can examine the curious mechanism of a revolving light of intense brilliancy, that sends its warning for many and many a league to the adventurous mariner in that fearful Bay of Biscay. On one side the view extends far over the fertile valley of the Gironde, whilst on the other it reaches only the infinite blue of this turbulent bay. We had the usual quantity of storms and boisterous weather in making our way out of the Bay of Biscay. The Brant was a good ship, though perhaps too deeply laden. There was a large saloon on the after-deck, where all our meals were served, and which was our social hall. Our family on board consisted of our parents, seven sisters, one of whom was married, and three brothers. There were, besides those, other passengers. On the afternoon of 30th September, being then nearly off the western islands, we experienced a tremendous gale from the northwest. That evening we were all assembled in the salon for the last time. All night the storm continued with increasing violence. On the 1st of October, our two younger brothers, one ten, the other twelve years of age, who slept in the stateroom with me, having, like all others on board, spent a restless night, rose at the dawn of day and went on deck. The officer on duty bade them not to remain there, and they went into the salon, where it was thought there was at least safety. At about half-past six there was a terrible, deafening crash, the sound of which, breaking upon drowsy ears, still reverberates in my mind. The vessel had been struck on the larboard bow by a tremendous wave, which, crossing her from stem to stern, rent up everything, and completely swept our decks, whilst it threw the ship with her beam ends in the sea. The caboose longboat and water cask cables and everything amidships, her bulwarks and every particle of the salon were violently shattered and washed away, and the deck around the companionway and the forecastle hatch completely torn up, making the whole ship a wreck indeed. The mast alone were uninjured. Fortunately, she soon righted. My thought was, of course, for my brothers, knowing that they had gone on deck, and as soon as possible I rushed up, half-clad, up the companionway. Here a scene of desolation presented itself, I should in vain attempt to describe. The naked decks, with nothing but the mast standing, the rig flying in, every direction, the bulwarks destroyed, 
and presenting no barrier to the sea, which, with every roll of the vessel, washed over the deck and down into the cabin, then the waves mounting high and with foaming fury that seemed every moment to threaten destruction, whilst the gusty blasts, howling through the rigging, were a fit dirge for the impending fate. I could not reach the deck. Struck with awe and wonder, I looked around for some living being to tell me of my brothers. Too soon, alas, the sad tale was re revealed. A sturdy seaman, our second mate, whose honest heart had made him a fit with us, was seen cramped to the rigging about midships and drawing something out of the sea. Presently our youngest brother appeared, and, as the mate reached me, and placed his almost inanimate form in my arms, he pointed astern and said, The other is lost. I looked, and on a crested billow, fast receding, and already far from us, I caught a momentary glimpse, the last of poor Gabriel. I subsequently learned from the mate that, when the vessel first righted, he saw Gabriel in the sea, having hold of a fragment of the jolly boat. He seized a rope and threw it to him. The boy let go his boat and swam to the rope, but it sank before he could catch it. He then turned to his boat again and was beyond the reach of assistance before any could be rendered. The mate then saw the youngest brother also overboard and clinging to the main sheet, which was hanging over the side, every roll of the ship taking him under water. His effort to save him was successful, though to loosen his hold he had much difficulty. Besides these, five men were washed overboard, but were all providentially saved by the efforts of the counter-wave, and but two seriously injured. One had broken his leg. A sad duty had now devolved upon me, as I appeared below with the half-drowned boy in my arms and met the affrighted members of the family, who by this time had collected in the main cabin. To their anxious inquiries, and to those of a distressed mother, it was my painful task to repeat the awful words of the brave sailor, The other is lost. I cannot depict the anguish of that moment. Though our cabin was deluged with water, and threatening danger seemed each instant to hurry us all into eternity, one loud lamentation for him, who perhaps had only for a brief period gone before, escaped every bosom, and sorrow absorbed the sense of peril. But all thoughts now turned to the fond mother, whose agonized heart more keenly than any other felt this poignant loss. Her big swollen grief surpassed the power of utterance. She stood aghast. Nor had she speech nor tears to give relief. Excessive woe suppressed the rising grief. Throughout the day the storm continued with unabated fury. Our disabled vessel lay to the sport of every wave. For a while we scudded. As night set in, she was again struck by an immense sea, which, taking her in the stern, stove in our dead lights and deluged the cabin again, whilst on deck it severely injured several persons, almost killing the helmsman, besides breaking the wheel. The ship was again hove to, 
and through that long night and part of the next day, each hour appearing more fearful than the last, wind and wave seemed to contend with undiminished violence as to which should strike the fatal blow that would end our struggles and completely demolish our already unsafe vessel. At length, after forty-eight hours' continuance, the storm abated. Once more a bright sun appeared, and hope smiled upon us through its cheering rays. Some time was spent in such repairs as could be made, and it was decided, the wind being westerly, that we should put back for the nearest port in Europe. All our livestock and fresh provisions being washed away with the entire supply of cooking utensils, it was fortunate that, among the private stores in the cabin, we had a quantity of French conserves, pâté de Perigord, de foie gras, and so forth, but these luxuries became exceedingly distasteful when they constituted our chief food for several days. On the fifth day we encountered a craft that supplied us with some bread and a barrel of potatoes, as well as an iron kettle. Never shall I forget the delightful relish that those potatoes proved to have after we had remained so long without the means of cooking anything. The wind being favorable as we entered the British Channel, we continued our course and reached Havre on the 9th October. The Brant was reported at Havre, and the anxious surprise of our elder brother, who was residing there, soon brought him on board. The meeting with an afflicted mother opened afresh her lacerated heart. No word was spoken. Our dismantled ship and the one missing form too plainly told the sad tale. The Brant was necessarily abandoned, and on the 15th October we sailed for New York in the packet ship Queen Mob. We had a long passage of forty days, with much boisterous weather, but nothing worthy of particular note occurred, save the loss of one of our crew. It was ere the dawn of day a western gale had partially subsided, and the wind came only in gust. Two men were ordered to let out a reef in the spanker. One of them, a sailor whose fine appearance and handsome, happy countenance had often attracted the attention of the passengers, was on the extreme end of the boom, when it suddenly jerked by a fitful blast so violently as to throw both men off, the one at the end falling into the sea. Immediately the cry ran through the ship, All hands ahoy! A man overboard! And, ringing through the cabin, sent a thrill in every heart that made each slumberer leap to his feet. The captain was quickly on deck, and many half-clad passengers, rushing from their berths, followed him. The ship was hove to as rapidly as possible, and the mate, with two seamen, jumped into the stern boat. There was no hesitation. The word was given, let go, and the frail bark struck the sea. It was a noble sight to see these three men periling their own lives in a rough sea to save a fellow creature. They plied their oars in the wake of the ship and were soon out of sight. Silently and anxiously we watched for them, upwards of an hour. At last, when the morn began to wave her purple wings, we descried the boat returning. As soon as they were within sound, they were hailed by the captain with an all well, 
breathlessly we listened for a reply a mournful no was echoed back and as the brave fellows ascended the deck an emotion of sympathy was felt for their noble daring and a silent tear moistened the eye for the fate of their former companion new york was in future to be our permanent abode for a time everything seemed strange to the younger children we could understand but very little english and american children with whom we could not converse seemed dull companions in comparison with our merry little playmates of les jardins publics my thoughts were always wandering back to the pleasant places we had left and i longed to exchange the red brick walls for the green trees and beautiful gardens shall we never return must we live here always were questions often asked with childish eagerness but never satisfactorily answered then came school days with their busy round of joys and cares joys less perfect than those of after years and cares that press heavily on the child's unstrengthened heart as life cares on that of matured but courageous womanhood so at least i thought and still think soon after our arrival in new york we were placed at miss o'kill's boarding school and there i appeared for the second time on a mimic stage it was in a little french play i do not even recollect its name performed after a public examination of the scholars for the amusement of the parents and guardians my sister matilda and i were entrusted with important parts and won many praises for a long period i did not entirely recover from the consequences of the sea voyage and its terrible excitements and my school days were frequently interrupted by fits of illness i was however permitted to read as much as i chose and availed myself amply of the privilege i read anything and everything i could find of poetry i was never tired and at ten years old i had read the whole of shakespeare's plays many times over my reading was not guided i was allowed to take any book i chose french or english from my father's library when i look back on some of the works which i peruse with avidity at that early age i can hardly believe it possible that a child could have waded through them or called out meaning enough to render the subjects interesting i amused myself by writing also and fancied that i wrote poetry because i made the ends of the lines rhyme every marriage or birth or death or exciting circumstance that occurred in the family invariably furnished me with a subject all my deeper feelings spontaneously expressed themselves in verse i used to sit for hours stringing doggerel together and longing to show it to somebody who would be sure to say that the verses were very beautiful i seldom had the courage to exhibit these infantile productions but laid little plots to secure their being seen sometimes i would leave a copy of the verses on the floor in some of my brother's rooms or on the nursery mantelpiece or write them on the walls in the garden which at one period were covered over with rhymes 
I seldom got praise for any of these effusions, and I doubt whether they deserved any praise, though I, at the time, imagined them very fine. One day I let fall a little poem, as I designated it, in the room of one of my brothers, and soon after perceived him coming out of his apartment with the paper in his hand. He went downstairs, and, unperceived, I stole softly after him. When he entered the drawing-room, where my father was sitting, I dropped down the last step, where my heart was beating so painfully that I could scarcely breathe. I could hear him say, "'Just read this, Papa. It is some of Anna's nonsense.' I sat still, too much agitated to move, but not able to overhear what passed until the words came to me in my father's voice. I wish you would call her. I sprang up to betake myself to flight, but my brother had opened the door before I could disappear. I was summoned. I entered the room like a culprit who had been guilty of some heavier crime than that of murdering English and perpetrating bad poetry. "'Did you write these lines yourself?' inquired my father in his usual kind tone. "'Yes,' I answered. "'Are you sure that nobody helped you? "'Are you sure that you did not get them out of some book?' "'I replied indignantly that they were my own. "'I was beginning to be elated by the idea "'that probably I had produced something wonderful after all.' They are not very good grammar, said my father, but they are quite pretty for all that. Who knows what my little chicken may turn out one of these days, he added, caressing me. These were the very first words of praise that had ever been bestowed upon what I wrote. I felt inclined to cry for joy. But my brother took the lines and began pointing out the flagrant mistakes in meter, in grammar, in sense, and I snatched the paper out of his hands and ran away. My childish heart was full of conflicting emotions, delight at my father's approval, vexation with my brother, shame at my own ignorance in writing so incorrectly. For a long period after, I kept everything I wrote carefully locked up and made a bonfire when my store accumulated beyond my bounds. At school I was too wild, too ungovernably gay, to gain the highest honors. I learned with great rapidity anything I fancied, but the good marks I got for my studies were too often counterbalanced by the bad marks I received for talking, making the other girls laugh, or disobeying rules. I and one of my younger sisters were constantly convicted of being ringleaders in all mischief, which had merriment for its end. I was generally at the head, or very near the head, of classes for reading, recitation of poetry, mythology, history, physiology, mental philosophy, etc., but invariably at the foot of grammar, arithmetic, algebra. The multiplication table I never succeeded in learning. Sums in the rule of three and French verbs were my childhood's misery. I considered them invented for my own particular torment. I got into the more deep disgrace on these points because I was tolerably bright in other respects. During a portion of our school day probation, 
Two sisters and I were placed at a boarding school in New Rochelle. There I was really unhappy. I had but one source of consolation and delight, the little garden which I was permitted to plant and call my own. We each were given a bit of ground about four foot square and allowed to work there a short time every day. These were the only happy hours I can remember amongst the many lonely and miserable ones that made up that year. Nor were these miseries imaginary. We were harshly treated, punished for the slightest infringement of the most severe rules, inadequately fed, and deprived of all pleasures but a formal walk every afternoon, a short intermission twice a day, at which we were forbidden to make any noise, and the much-prized and delightful garden digging. When I was twelve years old, we were summoned home. Our father's house seemed paradise, indeed, from the contrast. We once more became day scholars in good schools and merry as uncaged linnets. Our favorite amusement continued to be the enacting of plays and reciting poetical dialogues. I soon became the stage manager and director of all these dramatic performances and was called upon to write fresh scenes, add in new characters, or alter the denouements according to the fancies of our whimsical little corps. Sometimes we invented the plots of these plays or selected them from incidents in history, chose characters, dressed for them, and improvised the dialogues and the scenes during the performance. We did not care particularly for audiences. They generally consisted of our schoolmates or any accidental visitors, and very often we had no audience at all. These plays merely took the place of other childish games and afforded an intellectual excitement as well as an amusement. I was 14 years old when I conceived the project of preparing some grand celebration in honor of our father's birthday. We should enact a standard play, a real play. It should be studied and produced with great care. The friends of our elder sisters and our parents should be invited as well as our own. For once we would act before grown-up people and on a great occasion. The play selected, because it required no scenery and only such characters as we could readily fill with the assistance of some school friends, was Voltaire's Alzer, translated into English. All our male characters were represented by young girls, for our brothers had passed the days when they could have been persuaded to wear the sock and buskin amongst juveniles. Our parents would not have allowed us to supply their places with anyone but those of our own sex. A great difficulty arose in procuring costumes for the Spanish and Moorish heroes, a difficulty which came near ruining our project. Mr. Simpson, the excellent and gentlemanly manager of the Park Theatre, with his delightful family, lived opposite. We had no acquaintance with them beyond bowing to the children when we met in the street. It was proposed, however, that three or four of the most confident of our number should pay a visit to Mrs. Simpson and beg her to use her influence with her husband to lend us certain costumes from the wardrobe of the theatre. Mrs. Simpson received us very kindly. I was made spokesman on the occasion, and, 
but for her sweet face and gentle manners, should have found some difficulty in making known the wishes of our youthful committee. Evidently much amused at our enthusiasm, she promised that we should have the dresses. In return, we invited her children to be present at the performance. We had many, a great many, rehearsals, some before our parents and elder sisters, who, after witnessing one of these, consented to invite their friends. When the play concluded, the evening was to end with a ball. The performance was to take place in the back drawing room. To supply the place with scenery, it was hung round with crimson curtains, through which we were to make our entrances and exalts. The audience were to sit in rows in the front drawing room. We had a drop curtain and a prompter, who stood ready with his book and bell, or rather her book and bell, for she was a young lady, to mark the division of acts by the falling of the curtain. Of course, there would be no change of scene. The audience was supposed to courteously imagine when we were talking by moonlight in a wood, or by torchlight in a prison, or by daylight in a lady's boudoir. The eventful evening so anxiously expected by our little troop came, and with it a host of visitors. They were presented with a neatly written program at the door, and seated in a manner to allow the old people and children a close proximity to the stage. A program had been written by a talented friend, Miss Anna L. Putnam, the sister of the publisher, to be spoken by our youngest little sister, Julia, then scarcely four years old. She was my pupil, and I had cause to be proud of her. I think I was more anxious that she should acquit herself brilliantly than I should perform my own part with eclat. Her talent for the stage, even at that age, was a marvel. She did not speak with parrot-like precision, as though the words had been taught to her, but uttered them as though she comprehended them and knew their full value and gave them a meaning of their own. The curtain rose, and she came tripping forward, unshadowed by the touch of fear, a round, rosy, lovely child, with a look full of intellect and a grace which no art could teach. On her fair, curling hair, we had placed a wreath of rosebud and leaves, and she wore a little white dress looped up with pink ribbons. Her recitation of the prologue seemed to me perfection, and those who were better judges and still remember it say that no poem could have been more effectively delivered. Her presence of mind must have been something remarkable, for the curtain not falling at the right moment she prettily repeated over the last lines, kissing her hand and curtsying three or four times as she backed up the stage with the knowledge of a veteran artist. This had not been taught to her. As soon as we could catch her in our arms, she was almost smothered with kisses, but she was a calm, self-possessed little creature, free from all vanity, and did not appear in the least excited. She had played her part well and only wanted to escape into the drawing room to sit on her mother's knee and watch the others perform. The play went off with great eclat. As the tears of the audience bestowed as freely as their applause amply testified, I enacted the part of Alzir and succeeded in losing my own identity in that of the heroine. 
My father came behind the scenes when the play was over, and his words of commendation sank deep in my heart. I wondered if I really deserved them, and if other people would say the same. Our stage dresses were quickly laid aside for the ball costume, and the evening ended in dancing and great hilarity. Strange to say, up to this period, I had visited a theater but once, and that only a few weeks before our birthday fit. For some years, our parents and their children had all attended the church of Dr. E. Now, Bishop E. I went to Sunday school with my sisters twice every Sunday, at first as pupil and then as teacher. I had a species of enthusiastic admiration and reverence for Bishop E. I loved to see him enter the Sunday school. I loved to hear him in the pulpit and was happier all day if he accidentally bestowed upon me a passing word. He disapproved of theaters. He pronounced them the abodes of sin and wickedness. It never occurred to me to inquire what he really knew of theaters, but I entrusted him implicitly in his supposed information. I determined that I never would enter such a dreadful place. My sisters went now and then with our father, but in spite of my decided passion for plays and for acting, the thought of the imaginary monsters of evil, which I was certainly to behold, kept me away. Fanny Kimball was then taking her farewell of the stage. Her name was on everybody's lips. Her praises echoed from all sides. I read critiques of her acting in the papers and heard her talked of as a most devoted daughter and a truly excellent woman. I could not help longing to see her, but the old objections were strong within me, and I was afraid of being laughed at if I confessed that my interest in the woman made me willing to enter such a place, as I supposed the theater to be, to see the actress. Her last engagement was drawing to a close. My sisters had witnessed several of her performances and constantly mentioned them with delight. One morning my father overtook us as we were walking to school. He accosted my elder sister with, I am going to take seats to see Fanny Kimball tonight in The Hunchback. Would you like to go? She, of course, answered in the affirmative. I looked at my father, longing for him to ask me, but I had too often cried down the theater with childish violence and quoted Dr. E. as an authority. I dared not request that my father would take me. Just as he was leaving us, he said carelessly, And so you, Anna, are never going? I could not resist the temptation and answered in a faltering voice, I should like to see Fanny Kimball just once. Oh, you have changed your mind. Very well. I shall take a seat for you tonight, was his reply. That day, few were the studies to which I attended. I could think of nothing but the theater and do nothing but long for evening to come. It did come at last, after a day that seemed like a week, and to the theater we went. When we entered the boxes, my first sensation was that of bewilderment at the crowd, the lights, the music, the sea of expectant faces beneath us in the pit, 
and mounting in waves around us and above. Yet I did not quite forget that there must be some sin and wickedness which I could not comprehend, and I believe I even asked my father to have the goodness to point out the harm. He might have told me, what I learned in after years, that the harm consisted in the perversion of good to evil, in abuses which have nothing to do with the drama itself, in the poison which evil minds, like spiders, draw from the rose when the bee sucks nothing but honey. The curtain ascended, and I was all eyes and ears. Fanny Kimball appeared in the second scene, and I thought I had never beheld any creature so perfectly bewitching. The tones of her voice were richest music, and her dark flashing eyes seemed to penetrate my very soul. Her, Clifford, why don't you speak to me, made me start from my seat. Her, do it, to Master Walter, electrified me, as indeed it did the whole audience. The play was a reality from beginning to the end, and I laughed and wept immoderately. After the drama, the two Mrs. Wheatley danced a pas de deux, and though I have since beheld the finest European ballet dancers, none ever made the delightful impressions that those chastely graceful girls left upon my mind. I little thought that in after years I should have the pleasure of becoming acquainted with them, no longer children, but most refined and accomplished ladies, exemplary wives, one of them a mother, and both gracing the high sphere in which they move. Their stage garments have long since been laid aside, but the stage needs no better defense than the blameless lives of these two admirable and lovely women and their mother. All my prejudices against the theater melted into thin air with this first night. But I went very seldom, not more than three or four times, I think, while I remained at school. End of chapter one.